You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 3rd of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. What is most depressing is that I can see no forum in which this can be discussed, in which things can be resolved, in which the air can be taken out of this situation. My guests Isabel Hilton and Daniela Pelled will be discussing the latest from Hong Kong and will ask whether the violence is likely to increase. We'll also wade through the many trade wars of Donald Trump and discuss whether or not federal government should have a say at all about the placement of urban street art. Plus, we'll hear how Russia is moving to make its passport more attractive to non-Russians. Even if... One becomes a Russian citizen after a long period of time, it's unlikely to give you any benefits. It's one of the worst passports as far as opening doors goes. And we'll get the latest on Berlin's airport headache as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. We'll begin by taking a longer look at the day's big stories with our news panel. Today, that is Isabel Hilton, CEO of China Dialogue, and Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. We'll start in Hong Kong, where insult has been added to the injury suffered on Tuesday by Chang Chi Kin, the teenage protester who was shot by police during one of the city's recently recurrent pro-democracy demonstrations. Chang, currently in a critical condition, is to be charged with rioting and assaulting a police officer. Elsewhere, in the ongoing protests, an Indonesian journalist, Vebi Mega Indar, who was covering events, has been blinded in one eye after being struck by a rubber bullet, also fired by police. Um, Isabel, these are the most violent protests yet. I think there was a peak anticipated around October the 1st, the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic. Um, is this that, or is this a stepping up into a whole new realm of protest? I think we may have moved into a kind of stage of confrontation from which there is it, it's very hard to retreat. I mean, uh, of course, elements of this have been present from the beginning. The police, after the first episodes, went round the hospitals and charged people who were injured with, with a fray and, and that kind of thing. This young man is likely to face quite a lengthy sentence, you know, up to 10 years. It, it doesn't, it's not implausible that he was uh, attacking a policeman. That doesn't mean that shooting him in the chest at point blank range is, you know, a valid response. But the police have been, the police are pretty exhausted at this point. Mm. And they have been feeling a little kind of overwhelmed by this. They're hated by, you know, most of the population for what they're doing to the students. They're attacked by the protesters. And they're not really supported um, that much by the government, except that they have been given training on the mainland in in riot control, which tends to be of an extreme nature. So what you you can see the dynamic in this situation that you get, you know, you get a kind of more and more confrontation, and and then the indignation moves on. The indignation is now about the fact that he was shot, and that becomes another you know cause of of demonstration. So I think we are really in yet another perilous moment in Hong Kong, and. What is most depressing is that I, you can see no forum in which this can be discussed, in which things can be resolved, in which, you know, the air can be taken out of this situation. There, it, after all these weeks, there still isn't anywhere that, you know, there can be talks. Uh, Daniela, this is a, a dangerous point, I think, in, in any conflict where people start getting hurt, people start getting killed. And at that point, the conflict starts to become about 
the behaviour of rival sides within the conflict itself rather than what actually sparked the conflict in the first place. And that's when it can get a bit carried away with itself beyond what anybody really wanted. Yes, I think this is following a fairly familiar playbook in terms of political uprisings uh, and movements for change. Movements that start as uh, entirely non-violent then become more violent as uh, you know, as people get frustrated, and there are always elements that will turn to violence. Then the the state depicts them as terrorists, as, as infiltrators, and of course, as in the power of a you know the pay of a foreign power. And this is the absolute. This is classic from from everywhere, from 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 Palestine to Egypt to you know, make your make your choice. And then, then the movement itself begins to break down. And I, this was not, I mean, Isabel is far more of an expert than me, but I, as far as I understand, this isn't a cohesive movement. They, they, they want democratic change. There isn't an ideology behind it. This is not a revolution. Uh, and as so often happens, you know, the classic line, the revolution eats its children, uh, they fall victim to itself. And, and crucially here, and this is again another thing from the international playbook, there isn't really any outside interference, apart from some lukewarm comments by the Europeans and international organisations saying, no, stop, look, you're not supposed to shoot journalists. Uh, um, America's interest in China right now is just uh, restricted to trade wars. So human rights don't really come into it. And uh, as, as as super a power as, as China is, I don't think that it's completely immune to outside influence and pressure. But there really has been nothing substantive, and without something to to edge the process into a space of dialogue, or, or you know, to facilitate a situation where there can be some climb down on on, on all and, and and every side, then I think, as Isabel said, we're in a very very perilous point. Um, Isabel, which does, I guess, prompt what has been the big question hanging over these demonstrations since they started. And it was one which was asked with increasing urgency as the October 1st uh, anniversary approached, is how long does Beijing watch this happen? Because, again, I think people were quite surprised, indeed possibly pleasantly surprised, during the umbrella protests of a few years back that Beijing kind of backed off, or at least it didn't act in the way that it might have been expected to act were this happening in any city in mainland China. Well, it waited. Indeed. Uh, do you get the impression that they're kind of happy to wait more or less indefinitely where Hong Kong is concerned this time? The question is always, or else what? Mm. And and the or else what uh, can have graver consequences for Beijing than, than the waiting. I mean, you can see a number of, of measures being put in place. You know, that there is under discussion and likely to be uh, passed a law for banning face masks. Now, once you remove the anonymity from the protesters, then of course your chances of finding and and banging them up, you know, go up a lot, and that will put quite a lot of people off because it's one thing going out on the night; it's another going out with the prospect of a severe prison sentence. So, you know, you can see them nibbling away at the at the energy of the protests, and uh, but the problem with using full-scale violence, as, as I've said before, uh, you know, a la Tiananmen, is that that carries an, a massive cost to what is still a very valuable bit of real estate uh, in terms of, you know, its importance in international trade, its importance in, 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 in investment in China and in the global financial system. So damage that, and you're damaging a set of interests which go much beyond uh, the, the, the problem of, of uh, Hong Kong. And so far, they have managed to avoid contagion on the mainland, which would be 
a, a, mm. a major problem for them by dint of strict censorship and by dint of ruthlessly peddling the narratives that, that Daniel was talking about. It's all got up by foreigners and a tendency for mainland people to see Hong Kong as is rather spoiled anyway. They've got more freedom than we have. What are they on about? Um, plus, uh, uh, a migration plan which will flood the place with with people from the mainland. I mean, it's not unimaginable that in 10 years you could have so many former mainland people living in Hong Kong that you could safely hold a referendum on, you know, ab- abolishing one one uh, one country, two systems. And that is, again, a pattern of behavior that we've seen in other parts of China where China has effectively colonized and managed to sort of change the chemistry that way. Isabel Hilton and Daniela Pellet will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. French media reports that a man wielding a knife has killed four police officers at central headquarters in Paris. The attacker was later shot dead by police, and the area has now been sealed off. This comes a day after French police went on strike across the country over increasing violence towards officers. A curfew is in effect in Baghdad following clashes between protesters and the country's security forces. The restrictions will remain in place in the Iraqi capital until further notice. Curfews have also been declared in three other cities as people protest over a lack of jobs, poor services and political corruption. And the Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders has canceled his campaign events after undergoing a heart procedure. Sanders, who is one of the favorites to win the race to become the Democratic nominee, was treated in hospital after experiencing chest pains at a political event. The other candidates have wished him well. Those are some of the day's main news headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Daniela Pellet and Isabel Hilton. Uh, let's take a look now at US President Donald Trump's ongoing trade war with almost everybody, which is due to open up a new front later this month. On October 18th, American consumers of Scotch whiskey, French cheese and assorted other European exports will find such comestibles markedly more expensive as new tariffs are imposed by the US. These tariffs, which have been cleared by the World Trade Organization, are theoretically in retaliation for illegal EU subsidies to Airbus, but may have been given extra impetus by the fact that Trump just really likes tariffs. Um, Daniela, first of all, is it actually clear at this point that Donald Trump, though he does really like tariffs, um, actually understands what they are and how they work? Well, I'd love to surprise you now and say that I am actually an expert on economic tariffs. Uh, Sadly, I can't do that. Uh, It's a moot point to really understand what Donald Trump understands or not. And he seems to have an emotional response to to everything without with very little uh, logic behind it. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not an economist, you know, as a journalist, I, I rather like that the narrative idea behind this that Trump is banning like French cognac and posh cheeses and everything he kind of despises about the European bourgeois elite. Uh, but I know it's actually, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's wider, it's wider than that. But I mean, again, it's um, what makes these things real to people, though, I think, is also when the idea of an amorphous trade war and prices going up in a vague way is one thing. But I think when you start going to the shops and things that you want to buy and not just fine French wine uh, is more expensive. And this, I think, is likely to happen with China as well. When the actual products, I think then people start to realise that, hold on a sec, this has got an impact. Prices are going up. It's not just the widget for, for an airplane 
that is more expensive, but this is actually having uh, an impact on my life. And whether that changes their view about um, the policies, uh, Trump's policies, or whether, as in the case I think it has been with Brexit, it makes people dig down further and say, well, it's this is a sign of how rotten the other side is, uh, is yet to be seen. Uh, Isabel, is this whole judgment and the whole reason for this tariff a bit weird? Because even if the EU was illegally subsidising Airbus, which does seem to be the case, or European countries were illegally subsidising Airbus, is it weird to kind of make up for that by then telling America you can now whack punitive tariffs on, on Gorgonzola? Well, allowing allowing the aggrieved party to impose tariffs is part of the judgment. But this goes back. I mean, it gets a bit complicated because because of Trump and and his approach to tariffs. But actually, this dispute goes back fifteen years, um, and it it really reflects the massive rivalry between the world's two big airline companies. And one is Airbus, and the other is Boeing. Um, probably given an extra fillet recently by Boeing's other troubles, which include you know the two crashes of its flag new plane, the 737 MAX, the lawsuits which are likely to come from that, and the fact that all those planes are grounded. So Boeing is in a fair measure of trouble. The other, but aircraft parts are also included in this. And, and Airbus has pointed out that a quarter of a million American jobs depend on Airbus because a lot of the, of the parts, the supply chains that, that feed into Airbus are actually American manufacturers. And this is, again, the fallacy of imagining that if you impose tariffs, you don't hurt anyone at home. So you hurt consumers, but you also can hurt suppliers. Um, there is a separate issue with uh, Donald Trump and the European. European Union and tariffs, which is his, you know, last year's uh, imposition of, of steel tariffs and, you know, various other things. That's part of his general hostility to the European Union and particularly the trade balance with the European Union. It's kind of, you know, making America great again trope. But the final irony is that since he came into office, Donald Trump appears to have been set on destroying the WTO, which has just given him after all this enormous, you know, cake. Um, but he is still refusing to uh, to appoint judges or to or to agree to the appointment of judges. Now it is the judges in the WTO system, and there are meant to be eight of them, who sit on these judgments in these tribunals. And if America doesn't stop blocking the appointment of judges, that whole system is going to break down. Which again is something Britain might want to think about before it talks gleefully about WTO terms, because <laughs> there may not be any. So uh, in a nutshell, it's a mess. That's something to look forward to, um, Daniela. The, the the European Commission says it will retaliate um, hilariously. So does this just end up driving, well, let's say yet another wedge. I'm not sure how the metaphor works. The extant wedge between the EU and the US, is it now going to be whacked in another couple more notches? Well, Do wedges have notches? You know what I'm saying. I see where you're going with this. I see where you're going with this. Um, well, look, they've said uh, they've said kind of since we, they've hinted oh, we're we're going to do something. Yeah, we we're going we're looking at our position. We're going to take steps. They've got some months to 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 do that with. But you know, it's uh, <laughs> we're nearly in uh, election season in in the US. Let's see what fresh folly he comes up with. It's also worth remembering that the European Union has an identical case against Boeing in the WTO, which the WTO is to rule against. 
rule upon next year. So, hey. Outstanding. <laughs> um, finally, then, on our news panel to the eternally vexatious question of what does and does not constitute art in a public context. The Burgers of Ames, a town in Iowa, have found themselves at odds with US federal authorities over some downtown street crossings. Eager to project an image of inclusivity, they painted them in rainbow colours, but received a letter from the Federal Highway Administration telling them that street crossings should be white. Um, Daniela, not wishing to sound like I'm absolutely in league with the man here, but the FHA kind of have a point, don't they? Surely the actual crucial point about pedestrian crossings is that drivers can see them. Well, you know, I, I... I, I can enter into the debate of, you know, what is art? Uh, I can say that what is the opposite of, of art? The opposite of street art would be municipal officials and clearly Andrew Muller as well. Um, Are you accusing me of taking a tediously utilitarian approach I, to this? I'm, I'm afraid so. You know, look, in uh, in the in, around Trafalgar Square, they change around Pride, I think they change the... Um, the traffic lights are like male, female, male, male, female, female symbols. It's very cute. I haven't noticed any car crashes. But as long as they're basically red and green, people understand what they mean. It's so even better. Yeah, so so even better. So the the, so the, 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 the crossings are all colours of the rainbow. Surely that makes more that makes more sense. I mean, hey, let's just introduce it. Social change. <laughs> Isabel, is there not an issue here with the, the increasing whimsification of the world? Listen, I, I think particularly if you live in Iowa, but also elsewhere, <laughs> you know, a little bit of whimsy would be quite a good thing. I think we all need a little cheering up. And and I do, I, like Danielle, I see this as a kind of confrontation between, you know, the bureaucracy and the imagination. And the bureaucracy has always hated uh, the fact that citizens, you know, decorate their environment pretty much um, increasingly at will. But also the fact that when, when people do... Uh, it has rather a benign effect on the neighbourhood. So after years of spending taxpayers' money scrubbing, you know, graffiti and street art off the walls, there has been a belated recognition that certain kinds of street art, you know, put up the prices of the of the property. Um, Banksy was partly responsible for that, um, but you know, not only Banksy. In in you know, go to the East End of London or certain part of the Marais in Paris, you see an explosion of um, citizen-generated art, which I'm sure any municipal town planner hates. But at the moment, I think art is winning. Daniela, is there an argument that things like this at least prompt a useful conversation, not necessarily description we could apply to this one, but in general, uh, in, in the towns in which they occur? Because I, I am reminded at this point uh, of the the enterprise uh, of Eddie Rama, now the Prime Minister of Albania, but when he first became Tirana, um, he basically had the entire city painted uh, in all sorts of bright colours and weird patterns. There were lightning stripes and polka dots and checkerboards. Uh, and when I asked him about this the first time I met him, he, he said that he couldn't find any agreement anywhere on how Tirana needed to be redeveloped and what vision the citizens had. So he thought, well, if I do something, then at least that's a starting point for a conversation. So is there therefore an argument, even if it leads to a dramatic increase in road deaths, uh, for, for, for painting rainbows on roads instead of white, well, pedestrian, pedestrian crossings? Well, I mean, we're not talking about guerrilla artists going out in the middle of the night, and, and although that would be quite fun. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slippery slope. I think it has. I think it does have a great effect on the urban fabric. I remember doing a story for, for Monocle in, in Beersheba, this, in this very tedious, dusty town in the middle of the desert in Israel. 
uh, with a new mayor. And the first thing he did, this young dynamic guy, was to build fountains in most of the roundabouts, which I thought was ridiculous. But then I went around and spoke to people who lived there and they were all saying, have you seen our fountains? You know, people say we're in the desert, but look at these fountains. These fountains are great. So, you know, I had to I had to eat my words and think that actually it does make a massive, uh, a massive difference. And he's still there and he's still doing very well. Isabel, can we at least agree? Uh, because I do think this is, is part of the syndrome that we, we have had enough, at least, of official bodies and corporations trying to be friends with us. Like phrasing there, there is a particular rail franchise in this country, who I am going to name, Virgin, uh, who are especially obnoxious for this in sort of phrasing all their onboard announcements and uh, written warnings in this, this excruciating, matey, we just want to be friends with you language, whereas really all anyone actually cares about is at the train leaves on time and ideally arrives on time. Sure, but, uh, you know, you're talking about the corporate adop- uh, adoption of whimsy in order to, you know, make you make you love Virgin, which is a bit of a challenge. But I think that the, you know, this is the citizen and you may not like the, the effect. I, I remember a couple of years back, uh, a Banksy picture of a little girl losing a balloon was voted the nation's favourite painting, thus enraging both the art establishment and the city planners who get very exasperated with Banksy. But I think it's a sign that people actually like it, and they like it because it's not from a corporation and it's not from uh, from from the municipality. They like it because they have a sense of ownership. And if you're smart, like Banksy, you you kind of strike that note of 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 just speaking very simply to people. It's very easy to understand. It's often quite funny, um, and and it it just cuts through a, a lot of um, kind of pretension around art and and desire for control around officials. And I think it strikes a pretty good note. Daniela Pellet and Isabel Hilton, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we'll find out what Russia is doing to make holding its passport a more valuable prospect. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Russia is considering a plan that could boost the profile of its passport. Russian lawmakers are mulling a new bill which would allow foreign workers to become dual Russian citizens. Monocle's Melkin Charchoglian has been looking at this story. He spoke to Ben Rylan, who asked Melkin first about the current situation for foreigners working in Russia. So at the moment, as with any foreigner even visiting Russia as a tourist, if there are sort of legal obstacles to getting a visa, a lot of paperwork appealing to embassies, it's not, you know, it's not the streamlined online process that you get with certain countries. Whereas, you know, if you're in the UK and you're working here, there's a very realistic possibility of acquiring a British passport, which would open up many doors. You know, if you're not already a member of the EU or, you know, if you don't come from a country such as Canada or the US, you have to apply for visas if you're going on holiday somewhere. The British passport, for example, dispenses with all of that, making it very attractive. So my only issue with this story is that even if one becomes a Russian citizen after a long period of time, it's unlikely to give you any benefits. It's one of the worst passports as far as opening doors goes. You know, you can go to Syria and you can go to China without a a visa, but not many people go to those places on holiday. I think this is a drop in the ocean and what Russia really needs to do is create stronger diplomatic ties. If you're Russian, you can go abroad easily without needing a visa. If you want to go to Russia on holiday, you shouldn't have to fill out a bunch of paperwork. It should be all done online. 
that's the step that they really need to be taking. Mm. So obviously it's part of a, a broader aim here and uh, part of that will be to make the Russian passport simply more attractive overall. But uh, as you say, Mel, globally speaking, it's not a very powerful document to have. What do you think this tells us about the broader ambitions uh, behind this kind of bill? Well, I think Russia is historically a place of uh, emigration. You know, for example, Israel has a huge population of former Soviet subjects, many of them, you know, Russian Jews. And I think Russia is trying to bring people back. So apparently figures uh, up, up hugely on last year by about 20, 22% on foreigners becoming Russian citizens. And thus probably people from Ukraine, again, from the former Soviet Union. So I think they just want to reverse that process. But for example, I'm a Russian citizen and a British citizen, but I never use my Russian passport. It, it has absolutely no advantage. So Russia might be trying to attract people back and stop this massive flux of people out of the country. For example, London, huge Russian population. But that's step one of what needs to be a far greater endeavour. Monocle's Melkin Charchoglian speaking there to Ben Ryland. And to Germany now, where the failure to launch Berlin's new airport has drifted well beyond the realm of farce. Berlin Brandenburg Airport has become an embarrassment for Germans. It was meant to open in October 2011, but has faced a series of delays and budget overruns. However, after a successful operational test of Terminal 1, it looks like the airport will indeed open in October 2020. The biggest hurdle, fire protection concerns, seems to have been overcome. A spokesperson for the airport says that most of the technical problems have been solved. The main challenge is the transformation of the terminal building into an airport that's ready to operate. That includes the acquisition of approximately 20,000 volunteers for testing processes like boarding and checking in. The final report of the assessment is due at the end of this month, but the result is expected to stand, even if it will be a great relief for Berlin to finally have the airport it deserves. It will be sad to see the charming, if old-fashioned, time capsule that is Tegel Airport replaced. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>